Hello and welcome to episode number 87 of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it's my genuine pleasure to bring this great conversation with Matt B. Lloyd. Matt is the host of Classic Comics with Matt B. Lloyd on Comics in Motion. He is a writer, reviewer, contributor, and editor at DC Comics News. He holds a master's degree in art history from the University of Louisville and a doctorate in progressive rock from Genesis and Rush. Matt is the father of two awesome daughters, husband to an amazing and understanding wife, and Matt has a postdoctorate in comics from Heroes Aren't Hard to Find, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Parts Unknown in Greensboro, North Carolina. Managing a restaurant pays the bills, and it doesn't keep him from contributing to amazing academic works like Politics in Gotham, the Batman universe, and political thought. And it is for those reasons and many, many more which you are about to discover that make Matt such a perfect guest to discuss a legend and an icon like Will Eisner and his seminal work, Contract with God. Join me now for a great conversation with a wonderfully engaging, thoughtful comics fan, aficionado, and I believe one of the many living examples of encyclopedic knowledge and and so adept at recalling it all, I can only sort of shake my head in wonder and amazement. But it's for all those reasons that I, and I believe you, will enjoy this great conversation between Matt and I about an amazing figure and an artist and creator who fearlessly brought his personal life to the page. And because of his bravery, we... As comics fans, as fans of stories, as fans of those pieces of art that move us, we are better for it. Join me now for this great conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it is my uh, genuine pleasure and delight to have with me today, Mr. Matthew B. Lloyd from DC Comics News. Matt, how are you, sir? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, my genuine, <laughs> it's my genuine pleasure. Uh, I, I do want to point out the fact that uh, you will also, if you listen to podcasts and if you've listened at all to Comics in Motion, you'll be aware that Matthew B. Lloyd has recently launched his own podcast show on uh, Comics in Motion. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about that so people have an idea about your background? Uh, yeah, that is a show called Comic uh, Classic Comics with Matthew B. Lloyd. And what I do is I, uh, I cover material that is pre-Silver Age. Uh, there's no company uh, alignment or anything like that. There's no particular uh, genre of books or characters, but I just cover stuff pre-Silver Age. So I, uh, I've done stuff on newspaper ships like Terry and the Pirates, um, old comics like the original daredevil that uh was published by lev gleason something that a lot of people may not have heard of and then uh my show that just came out uh this week is about the human torch and submariner and their first uh meeting in 1940 in uh marvel mystery comics and their battle and whatever but i, I talk a lot and have a, have a spider web kind of mind so I, I tend to go on in different directions with things as well even though i have a have a purpose you know you know that that actually ends up talking about the marvel captain marvel movie also because it 
I, I found a connection in my brain and it went right to it uh, as part of it. So lots of stuff like that. I like to, uh, I've always enjoyed old comics, especially stuff from the forties, the especially stuff from, uh, from newspaper strips. I don't know why there's something different about them. Uh, to me, they're much more sophisticated and uh, grown up than a lot of the basic comics we think of when we, uh, go back to the golden age and sure i enjoy picking up a, a you know a dc archives book from the golden age and reading the original stories of superman batman green lantern and all that stuff but you go to the newspaper strips and there's just a, a a maturity to a lot of that stuff that's that's well beyond the uh the basic comics and i think we'll get into that with uh talking about will eisner and not just a contract with god but his spirit stuff and really anything anything he did he was a real innovator and that's how that connects and that's why i just thought of that <laughs> <laughs> well it's one of the reasons why i was so excited to contact you and ask you to come on for this episode this episode uh, as you've alluded to is going to focus on will eisner last year i had the chance to sit down with uh, danny fingeroth who is a marvel writer and is currently the chair of the will eisner um organization and oh, wow. chairs the will eisner week yeah he was so great he recently wrote a book um about stan lee and his experiences and uh stories that he learned while working with stan lee and then later he and stan did a lot of projects together in collaboration with will eisner and will eisner week so oh. it was it was often that they got to hang out he had some great stories and he also just sort of gave me a uh, a reference point for will eisner and I always understood his value because he was so often referenced in regards to one of the earliest pioneers and figureheads of comics. And then all it takes is once a year paying attention to when the big awards come around. And the biggest in comics is the Eisner Award. And all you have to do is read a little bit about this guy to uncover what an amazing person he was. Um, which brings me to what I think is a great way for folks to sort of get an idea of how people will discover him, which is to ask, Matt, how did you first become aware of Will Eisner? What was your uh, exposure to him and interest and in sort of let people know how you knew this guy we're both going to be talking about? It is interesting that I know exactly how I first discovered Will Eisner. I remember specific details. I was in the comic book shop that day heroes aren't hard to find in charlotte i was 13 years old i think that was seventh grade had it was spring i think it was spring of seventh grade i was 13 years old and i was in the comic shop one day and you know back then there were regular comic racks and stuff but then there was another section that had a uh, magazines like i don't think heavy metal was on that rack but it was they had more magazines like that that had comics and stuff in them and there was this uh magazine that said will eisner's the spirit magazine and i really didn't know what it was but i th i think it was uh cc beck it said interview with cc beck who of course is one of the co-creators of cap the original captain marvel from fawcett comics and i thought oh that's interesting i wonder what what that's all about so i picked it up and sort of flipped through it, and it had four black and white spirit stories. It had a one-color spirit story reprinted in the center, and then it had uh, the interview with C.C. Uh, Beck, and it was actually Will Eisner interviewing C.C. Beck. And I thought, this is interesting. This is different, and I really liked the cover. The cover was the spirit hanging from a tree with his legs wrapped around this 
you know, thug looking guy. And he was obviously the guy was so big. The spirit had to try to get him with his legs just to try to stop him. You know, he, if he had say he was standing in front of him, you know, the guy would have just steamrolled him. But uh, that was interesting. And then the, the image, the, the stuff I saw inside and, and I wanted to read about the CC Beck interview. And so I bought that with my comics and <laughs> I, I, I went home and I read it and I probably read it three or four times really i even took it to school the next day i even took it to school the next day it was that i'm taking this with me so it was shoved inside my notebook uh you know we had a little pocket in the front of the three ring binders and it was shoved in there and i was showing a friend at school look at this i got look at the art da, 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 da. and uh that was my first uh introduction to will uh, will eiser in the spirit so unfortunately that was the very last issue of the spirit magazine because in the back of it, there was an ad coming uh, a couple months down the road. They started reprinting all the post-war spirits in a regular comic book. Uh, and so I started getting that immediately uh, when that came out a couple months later. Um, and there was also an ad for uh, Steve Canyon magazine, which was going to be a reprint of all of Milton Kniff's Steve Canyon uh, newspaper strips from – its inception in 1947 and i thought well that's this looks i just looking at it it was like this looks different this is interesting and i really like the bigger magazine format too so i started buying that but milton kenneth is a different subject who i have a lot of love for also but anyways that is my specific memory of my introduction to will eisner in the spirit so i i, I started getting uh he, he had shelton had a couple other older issues still on the rack that I was able to pick up. And then he had some uh, ones that were a little bit older in the back. Used, I found one with, uh, I wanted to get the one with the interview with Jack Kirby. And uh, so I, I, I was going to buy it because I was only 13 or 14. Shelton was like, um, my mom was there, looking, uh, told my mom, I like some of the stuff was a little bit adult and there was like some nudity in the original stuff that uh, Eisner had in there. Uh, oh, he was also serializing uh, a life force at the time in that one of his graphic novels from the 80s. Uh, and there was some nudity in there. And so my mom was like, no, no, you can't have that. I was like, but I, 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 I really honestly said, but I want it for the interview with Jack Kirby. <laughs> and, and they're like, no, no, no. I, I bought it a couple years later when I was older. <laughs> That's like saying, oh, I only buy the Playboys for the, uh, you know, fiction inside. Right. That's the only yeah. the jokes. <laughs> It was really funny because it was – I didn't even know that was going to be in there. I really wanted it for the interview with Jack Kirby. Sure. Uh, so I, I started getting that and reading all the, the the comics that were coming out with the spirit reprints. And uh, eventually I got uh, I got to ordering more back issues from the, the publisher uh, directly. They still had back issues that I couldn't find in the store of that. And that's when I first started getting some of the – the graphic novels of course i i got uh i got to read most of the life force as it was serialized in the uh will eisner magazine spirit magazine that where it first was put uh published and then some of the older issues had uh, a signal from space which is called uh oh no a life on another planet and then it's a signal from space once it's collected and i read some of those and then i got i got that book and that's when i got a contract with god because then at this point of course i'd read about a contract with god i'd heard about it it's the first graphic novel 
that kind of thing. And it's like, I, I gotta, I gotta get more of this. Cause this guy's, <laughs> this guy, this guy is great. And all the spirit stuff is great. And it's, it's so different. And I gotta get this. And that's how I first found Will Eisner and the spirit for that matter. Well, that's a, that's a really fortuitous discovery. <laughs> you, you, you find the last issue that's being printed you're able to get one or two of the previous, and then it, it turns you immediately on to the weekly reprint or the, the monthly re- reprints that are going on now. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then it, it gets you into trying to collect all of this other material, including uh, the serialized Life Force, which is huge. Uh, yeah. you, you still have all that, I imagine, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I've 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 seen glimpses of what I believe is a very impressive repository for all things comics related. Yes, there there is a substantial. Uh, uh, how shall we put this? Uh, collection. collection of goods. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, off the top of my head, there's probably tw- close to twenty long boxes of comics, plus. And a number of shelves of, you know, collected editions, be the trades, gra- graphic, no- original graphic novels, you know, reprint, all that stuff. Just every shelf in, 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 my, in my other room is, uh, you know, full of DC Archives editions, showcase, you know, the showcase editions that, that DC did, the black and white reprints of those uh, books, uh, Marvel Essentials, those things, tons of stuff everywhere. <laughs> you can't that's you can't bump you can't go under a room without seeing comics and now because i've been doing the dcn thing for so long and the podcast and i did that chapter in the batman book and stuff i uh there's always comics on the dining room table too where my laptop is set up because i'm always writing something and referencing something and oh well there's my next project I, I'm, I'm getting that together if i have a chance to look at that i'll it's out so there's comics everywhere my wife is amazingly patient because not it wouldn't always have been like that but for me to have taken over the dining room with the comics everywhere but she knows how much how much fun it is for me so she understands and i get a lot of you know satisfaction out of doing that kind of thing that's awesome nothing better than great support from someone who realizes where your passions lie and you know there's there's few things better than than acknowledging that letting them know like hey these are going to be moments where your passion is going to override what the you know norm might be in a given situation, and gradually it might actually alter that concept of norm, so that this is the new normal, right? <laughs> I'm I'm still not allowed to play drums in the garage when she's home, though. That's that's about where the line is drawn, though. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty sure there's plenty of people watching and listening right now who are like, "Yeah, I'm okay with that." Uh, <laughs> Not everybody loves the drums. Those who do love it, love it, you know, with a passion and uh, a wonderful one. I had a lot of friends who were into, I had a lot of uh, great friends who were great nerds and many of them were in things like band. And uh, a couple of those guys, man, the ones who got a percussion, like every time you're around them, it was, they're all tapping stuff and making noises. And you're just like, okay, all right, man, I get it. I, I figure everyone else has too, but you know, love you. And then it just becomes part of the new normal. So you got to chuckle. Now, here's the thing I want to I really keep in mind. And I would love for people to get an understanding of, um, because I think it might really provide a wonderful framework for everything we're going to be talking about, which is, it sounds like 
it sounds like you were into comics before you discovered Will Eisner and the spirit. And I'm curious what that had been like prior and then what that discovery of the spirit changed and Will Eisner changed for you as far as what comics had meant before. It's kind of like a before Will Eisner and an after Will Eisner. Oh, wow. You know, okay. Was life like, you know, because once you discovered these comics, you had been collecting for or interested in comics for how long beforehand. And then what did this mean to discover these this work and what it meant for what you did with comics after? Well, <laughs> big question. He, no, that's a great question. And uh, I, I was thinking of a really funny answer, like, you know, before Eliza, I think it was sad and dull and no, but that's not true. Uh, <laughs> when I, I, I'm not quite sure how old you are, but I'll be 51 in April and every people my age, when we were kids, everybody got comics as kids. I mean, when you were three, four years old, you had, you know, Bugs Bunny or Donald Duck or something because your parents gave you things to entertain with and here read this comic look at this comic um i have uh my two oldest like superhero comics that i have that i know i got when they were brand new were wonder woman 211 and detective comics I think it's 484. They were both 100-page giants, so they had an original story in the front. And then uh, the detective actually had is one of the ones with the uh, uh, Archie Goodwin, Walt Simonson, Manhunter series from the 70s. So it's Ooh. one of those issues. And uh, I had no idea what I was reading it, you know. That, <laughs> You're that, how uh, uh, four that's 1974 right. yeah i have no idea what i'm reading but you know uh but then also both books had a bunch of reprints they're 100 pages 100 super spectacular books and i know i started getting comics then when superhero comics and i had a few here and there as a kid as we all did of you know marvel and dc stuff uh but i think it was probably the batman 66 tv show and the spider-man animated series from the 60s that were always in reruns and syndication when i was a little kid four or five mm -hmm. years old there there is a there is a picture of me uh and i remember doing this playing with my spider-man mega figure while watching the show on tv at four five six years old so I knew I got comics in the comics really early. And then uh, I would we trade. I don't think I ever traded comics with friends, but I remember going to the 7-Eleven and the, the, the newsstand with friends and we would buy comics. And, and then uh, Heroes Aren't Hard to Find uh, opened up in Charlotte when I was 10 years old. And my mom saw a... Uh, newspaper article about it and we one saturday went down there and oh my gosh there's a whole store devoted to comic books and i, I here were these long boxes of old comics like so this is and you're, you're looking at comics that are from the 60s and such and i'm you know 11 years 10 11 years old at this point and it's hard to wrap my brain around what i'm i'm looking at and i went to the heroes a few times every couple months we'd go and i'd get a couple back issues or a new big here there and then when i turned 11 i got a gift certificate from my parents to heroes and i not only got some new comics and such but i got the overstreet comic book price guide uh the 11th edition that had just come out it was on my birthday and that just opened my, my, my brain up to a wealth of uh, uh, 
information. And that's kind of what sort of locked me into comics as more than just, you know, simple, simple entertainment. I started looking at it as something I wanted to, to, to be involved with and, and collect. And I started a pull list then and got, you know, only five books a month or something, you know. Uh, so I was reading superhero comics, basic Marvel and DC stuff at that point. Um, finding Will Eisner's spirit showed me that there was a whole other world of comics and things called comics that were very different from reading the monthly adventures of Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, the standard, you know, this is before direct, uh, direct sales had really started this is before uh dc launched legion of superheroes and new teen titans baxter editions in 84 um this is before that so comics were still a uh, mostly sold on newsstands uh at the time so to find this stuff that was really different was what would really really change my view of what comics could be and I think one of the biggest changes is in getting that that spirit stuff, it led me to Milton Kniff and Steve Canyon and Terry and the Pirates and other newspaper strips and seeing comics as an art form, as a as a unique storytelling medium that is not film, it's not illustration, it's not picture books that are illustrated, it's not prose obviously there's so many different things you could do uh with comics and how you can tell stories with comics that you can't do in any other medium sure we are so excited about all these comic book films that come out because it's the characters we know and love but it still doesn't translate exactly there's something different about the experience and that's what i think seeing the stuff eisner did and the other things that um Finding the spirit in Will Eisner led me to discover, especially newspaper strips. I, I'm going to be big on newspaper strips because they're they are significantly different from even the regular comic book experience because the way you have to tell a story. And I, I mentioned this in the, my Terry and the Pirates episode that it, it's just so much more mature what the stories are about uh, than your simple. 10, 12 page story from the from Golden Age comics. Which don't get me wrong, I, I love those, but it's so different in the newspaper strips uh, than what you got in the comics, especially the later 40s when things really got going. And I guess, uh, anyways, so that's really the difference. So, did that answer the question? That was a long answer. I kind of forgot where I was for a minute. I was like, I'm talking about myself and a foyer. Oh, wait, yeah, Will Eisner, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you gave us a great context for what your experience to comics had been before that. Uh, mine, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not by that much. And you're actually pretty close to my wife's age. And so that's a pretty good frame of reference, you know, for me, because I was aware of some things that had come uh, before I sort of gained any awareness of what's going on in the world or, you know, what is happening around me. And that certain things would be in rerun. But 
I was also lucky enough to come of age during a time when like the Wonder Woman TV show was a big deal. And I had the world's biggest crush on Linda Carter and no one could <laughs> you know, top my my absolute love for her. And and the fact that she every once in a while would spin and wear a different Wonder Woman outfit, like the one where she goes underwater. Hands that's, down, that's the first one day. I think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember it's, that. It's yeah. One of my favorite episodes to this day. I can think of that moment exactly. And be like, that is the coolest concept everyone should be able to spin in a circle and have the exact outfit. They, like it was just, it, it opened my mind to the possibility, but I think you've also introduced that idea, which is really important, which is what comics have been so far. I mean, up to the point when someone discovers them, there's a whole history that predates that moment of discovery. And that's a, a really fun idea because that's where so much of Will Eisner's um, earliest impressions were made in that history. And yet there's also the reasons why you know, keep in mind that, as you said, uh, there were so many different houses at the beginning. There were so many different companies publishing books. There were so many different ways to approach the medium. And then there were people who were doing things that defined certain mediums, uh, gave them a structure in a way that others looked to and said, that's utilizing the medium. That's understanding what the medium is possible and also how to use all of its possibilities to tell great stories. And, and with that is also the idea that people were getting these in books sometimes, but also you had the strips. I'll hopefully get a chance to talk about it when it becomes public, but I recently got the chance to work on a web strip series. Um, oh, cool. About eight cool. episodes in, but the concept for me writing it, because I've just done the writing side, has changed the way I think about stories. Like I, I tried to read, I tried to look, I read through McLeod's understanding. I was reading mm. through some Will Eisner stuff. And then, then there's the application of it and the whole way that you want to like understand what you work with. I still feel like a babe in the woods. It's really fun for me. I've written a couple of other comics um, scripts that I'm curious to see when I get a chance to start talking about them more publicly. Uh, right now, uh, I can't. I just, <laughs> I'm allowed to allude to the fact that I've written them. <laughs> right. But right. It's, it's really hard to share a lot. But it also, in the process, just exposes your understanding for what it is that you believe you're uh, experiencing. And then also what it is you can understand through a reread or when compared to something else. So what, what really sort of you know, catches me is, um, one, you saw not only from this experience what the value that Will Eisner had brought to comics through the spirit and was continuing to do. And then also in the long form, but then it turned your eye towards what also, you know, the fact that he had done a, a, a strip that had existed for so long that, that had also shown what possibilities existed within comics, which then led you to other comic strips. And then that all comes to this other idea, which I love, which is that when you're talking about comics, yes, we are all excited about the movies. One of the reasons we're excited is because the technology's at a level where it can actually as closely as possible represent these things that occurred in comics, which even when they try, they come close, but they never quite match the glory, the wonder, the, the atmosphere that somehow comics can create through certain images, certain splash pages, uh, certain styles that you just look at it and you're watching the film and you're going, they came pretty close on that one. Or these are some moments where they actually like did their best to take that and put it here. But 
just because that's what they're going for, it doesn't mean they always get it, right? Or that they understand it. Right. <laughs> and I, I think I think sometimes they, they'll, they'll do a great job and they'll have an, an image. Uh, and I, for, first thing I'm thinking of is uh, the first, the Daredevil movie by Mark Stephen Johnson with Ben Affleck. And it, the opening to that, to me, that is, he, he understands what he's doing. I think with that opening scene where you hear the pounding and you don't know what it is and you realize it's, it's the rain falling the way he's hearing it and the, the rat running along the, the street and then the camera goes to the street and it pans up the front of the church and you're like, and you're like, what's, and then there's Daredevil hanging onto the cross on the church and you're like, all right, you not only get it, you actually took a scene from an actual comic and, and, and proved that you're, proved your, your, your nerd quotient because that's right out of a comic and it was just perfect. Um, and that to me, he, he got it. But a lot of times I think they don't tend to get to get it. They don't always understand what they're doing. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And that's kind of where the, the disconnect is, because I think filmmakers don't always understand the, the form and how it's told differently and how that impacts the, the stories that are told. And it's great to be able to translate, uh, like I said, these characters and stories you love, but to me, often character is missing in the, uh, in the movies and it, they'll make a change that seems, uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Arbitrary. They'll make, it's like, why would you change that? Why would you make that different? Why don't you just do it like it is in the comic because that's proven to work and it's important to the character just make him like he is in the comic you don't need to change that just for your movie i understand they make changes like, like just quickly batman 89 you make the joker the batman batman's parents killer i understand that so that as a single movie it's a single story without these things that are missing and loopholes that are open and plot you know plots dangling that well who killed his parent you know that's a separate that's a separate story in the comics but they made it one story so it's a, a, a singular film i guess an experience and i guess the problem there is you know we're still not the intended audience the intended audience is still as many people as they can get but i don't necessarily think i think they underestimate the audiences in general that that you can you can keep it comics accurate and still get the the broader audience you don't have to simplify it in order to get more people i agree it seems at times they don't always trust the viewer to have the intelligence to understand something that's lifted directly from the comics and and bring it into the movie that something has to be changed in order to make it accessible or uh, hold a different value so that you can attract a wider audience but in actuality, the audience is more likely going to respect you for actually taking the time to, you know, be true to the material, put it up, and also let them know that you're listening to what the writer and the storyteller and the artists in that comic work were saying, and you understand it enough to put it on the screen in a way that audiences that know it will say, that's what it should be, and audiences that have never seen it before will say, wow. 
I'm so glad I've experienced this. It would have been great to experience in the comics. This is something I should be enjoying more of, you know, and it, that's, that's where the understanding I think is often missing. That's where the disconnect really seems to occur. Yep. Um, yep. And I think it's important because if we, you know, turn the conversation back to Will Eisner, in many ways, compared to the others around him, what he was doing in comics, just, it felt, it looked, it still feels and looks so very different as though, you know, like you're oh, yeah. describing, he in every situation begins with that sense of where am I and how do I explain to the reader what's going on and, and make them as part of this story as possible. And it also felt like in doing that, that he was doing things that's, that seemed so authentic to what he was doing, but also seemed so free that he would simply approach them, like you described with that example you mentioned. Uh, the spirit hanging from a tree because he needs to get high enough to get the leverage to get his legs around a guy who's bigger than him, which yeah. basically <laughs> says to me, Will Eisner at some point created a character bigger than the spirit and said, okay, now how do I beat him? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But in doing that, he, he didn't make it where like the spirit had to like pull out some fancy ray thing or have some invention. He just had to use what he had, which was this, you know, uh, in his bones desire to fight crime and to do whatever was needed to make that happen. Um, <laughs> comparatively, it just felt like what he was suggesting was, hey, this is what's possible. Did you notice? Because I'm going to show it to you. And each time I'm going to show you something different because it's what I've discovered. And it's what I think, he, you know, makes this story so original, so specific. And why I never felt like any of his two stories were really the same. He, he, has, he handles uh, a lot of the same themes uh, in, in his work and a lot of his stories, whether they are spirit stories or they are. Uh, his original graphic novels and such. He, he's writing a lot from life and his own experiences, especially with uh, his post-spirit work. It's, I think it's nearly almost all based on his experiences growing up and working through his own, his own life and what he saw and how those things affected him as a person. And he's, he's really writing about people more than anything else and to me i think that's one of the the linchpins of his work is that he's writing about people whether they're real people he knew whether they're amalgamations of people he knew he's creating characters and he's writing about characters even even in the, in the spirit once he really gets going after the war he's writing about uh people it's not so much even about the spirit the spirit is almost like a like a vehicle for telling other stories he's not really interested in telling stories about the spirit he wants to tell stories about the human condition about what it's like to uh to be somebody who's either misunderstood or or something like that and the spirit is just the vehicle to get to tell that story because that's what he's interested in and the spirit just happens to be the vehicle he had at the time and his outlet to tell the stories. That's why once we get to uh, his original graphic novels and stuff in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, and he, he, was, he was creating all the way up until the time he died. Uh, it's about people. And sometimes it's, like I said, it's real people. Sometimes it's autobiographical or semi-autobiographical, but it's, it's always about character. And that's what I think draws me in because I've, I've learned about myself, whether it's a movie, a 
a regular prose novel, comics, whatever I'm watching, I want the characters. I want the, the, the characters and the real human emotions and the relationships, you know, that that's, that's what does it for me. Thinking of in terms of comic book movies, I think my favorite example of that is uh, Captain America, Black Widow, and the Falcon in Winter Soldier. The, their their relationship and that that movie sure it's about you know shield and hydra and all that stuff but more more than anything else though it's those three plus adding adding bucky's character as they're trying to bring him back those uh those three characters how they relate to each other and the real human emotions involved that they get so right in that movie that it doesn't matter if they change some of the uh the incidental stuff with you know the comic accuracy bits that's what draws you in that's what makes it a great movie they didn't adapt ed brubaker's story exactly but they used the basic ideas and they had that core uh friendship between the three of them and then of course winter soldier himself and that's what makes it and that's what makes eisner's stuff so good is that it's it's real people and you can relate to that and i i did i did make notes about uh in after rereading this for, for, for getting together today. So we would have, so I would have something specific to turn to. And as we're talking, I'm starting to think about some of the things I, I wrote down. So we'll get to that at some point, but yeah, it's, it's this real people, the real people, the real emotion that is what I think either draws you in. But of course with Isaac, you got to talk about how he does it also. Cause it's a, it's a special medium as we've discussed already. That's unlike anything else. So he's doing things that are, it's not your simple, you know, six page panel comic with, you know, a caption and some dialogue here and there. And he's, he's doing different, different things and stuff, but, but we'll, we'll get to that as we get into the, the book itself. I won't, well, I won't jump too far ahead. <laughs> that's okay. Let me actually offer this as a segue. Cause it was a great uh, opportunity when I was talking with Danny last year and it's my first introduction to Will Eisner. And it was when I was uh, lucky enough to, so nearby my junior high and high school was the local library where I grew up. And I could go to the comic shop, but I couldn't always afford everything at the comic shop. So before I had fully invested in like just giving over my paychecks to comics <laughs> uh, and accepting that that was my fate for a period of time, I was also looking for ways that I could enjoy comics through the library. Because every once in a while I'd discover something where I'd be like, where did this comic in the library show up? What happened? <laughs> And so I found that there was actually a section of history on comics and I discovered this book and it was lovely because it went through the history by showing reprints of great moments in comics. And one of the ones that blew me away and to this day still impacts me is uh, Burhardt's novel. Oh, okay. Okay. And what also stuck with me was within a year or two of that, you know, discovery, uh, the band Pearl Jam, which was a big 90s uh, fixture, had uh, come out with their second or third album. I think it was their third. And on it was a song called Given to Fly, which when I would listen to it, I swore felt like the, the story of Burhardt Schnabel. <laughs> and I would have never made that connection until I had discovered this. But also the story of Burhardt Schnabel is the thing that, that attracts me the most to what you're talking about, which is the characters. Because I felt in that story, and this book did a wonderful job of highlighting this, we got to see that Will Eisner was telling a story about the spirit chasing some bad guys. But what was actually the, the story that, that pulled me in, and I believe most readers, 
is the story of this guy named Berhard Schnabel, who, you know, has a miserable office job that he hates people that he doesn't like. And he has a gift that he never shares with people. And that's that he has the ability to fly. And he suddenly hops out of a window and <laughs> flies around in like full, and you're, and I'm sitting there going, how does this happen in the forties? And it's Eisner saying, Hey, you don't know it didn't happen because by the end of the story, there's a tragic ending and only the spirit really has a sense of what might've occurred. And only the reader knows the full extent of what's happened or the full story of Berhard Schnabel. And I suddenly through that moment also became aware of the fact that this, the spirit I might've heard referenced at times or seen glimpses of had now shown to me that comics for a period of time when they weren't just about the newest, because also when I'm discovering this is the nineties, right? So yeah. I'm surrounded oh, by image. image. And, yeah, right. yeah. And it's just like, you Wolver- know, Wolverine is flex on nine and, out of every yeah. 10 Marvel comics. <laughs> right. Well, not only that, but everybody, everybody has to have like headbands and gauntlets and leg straps and holsters and bands and bandoliers. And there was a lot and flexing and, you yeah. know, there was just a lot of like overdeveloped uh, visual appearance. And yet before that had been these stories that told these beautiful, quiet moments and and suggested like mystery and magic and wonder without needing to go into a, oh, well, it's because of a gem or this and that. It was just, it exists. It's been put into the story. It's happening. It's appearing for the time that it is. And guess what? Like all kinds of things that happen that people never really see, but, but can happen, it, it ends. And only we, the reader, are the wiser for it. That, for me, opened up that idea of character. Is this a story you're familiar with? Have you read Berger? Oh, absolutely. Multiple times. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. As soon as you said it, I just, I imagined the image of him, you know, when he's flying and his arms are out to the side of the airplane, he's, you know, you know, that's exactly what I I saw as soon as you said it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, as as you're saying this, I think, uh, I think there's a, a message here and in, in, in the kind of stories like that that says if you don't sometimes slow down and try to see what's around you you'll miss amazing stuff in this case it's something i'm not gonna jump out this window next to me right now and fly away and you're gonna be like holy crap what happened you know that's not gonna happen but what are we missing in the world if we don't pay attention you know what kinds of people are we not aware of not seeing uh, which reminds me of the graphic novel Invisible People by Eisner. Uh, <laughs> and, a great uh, example. <laughs> yeah, and so it's it's that's kind of what to me the the deeper message in a story like Gerhard Schnubel is, is is about. It's not being aware of what's around us and, and missing the the like you said the beauty and the magic in everyday life. It doesn't have to be some guy flying around, but there's something missing, and the miss it is is tragic. And, and also the fact that I think it really opened my eyes to just how much we overlook, how much, you know, you like, I mean, you know, Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. You don't stop, <laughs> take a look around, you're going to miss something. That's, that's clear and that's evident from Will Eisner. But it's also the idea that, sure, there's, there's catching it when it happens, but there's also take a look around because you don't know who's holding something magical inside of them right now. Right. You know, and I think at times comics have done a wonderful job of of having characters who have amazing abilities, but in the real world, they are 
in the eyes of others, useless. Like they can't hold a job. They can't keep it together. They've got emotional issues. They've probably got trauma of some kind of PTSD from what they've experienced because of what they can do. And yet at the same time, you know, we're human beings, our, our, our abilities of perception and understanding, but only sometimes. Otherwise, it's always been this idea of, I have a power. Uh, I've discovered that I now must use my power for good. There is no question. <laughs> there is no doubt or uncertainty. It's just given, right? And, yeah. and there's, there's a healthy, you know, uh, opportunity, a spectrum from disheveled, broken mess <laughs> to upstanding, perfect figure you know epitome of all things and yeah he did a wonderful job of showing us so many levels of that and i always thought Berhard was a a great example of one pay attention to what's going on around you you could miss magic if you're too busy rushing on with your life but two even if it's not happening you don't know who around you has that thing inside them and like you is hoping that someone else will get the chance to see what makes us beautiful wonderful specific people who want to yeah. be recognized for what we have and rarely if ever get the chance to have that recognition how it is that we we all have this thing in us that we would love yeah. for others to experience and yeah. will eisner was telling that story through burhardt and, and through so many of his other characters in one of the re recurring themes that you had referred to that he often loves to tell stories about the human beings the people who aren't the superheroes the people living everyday lives they're uh you know quiet moments of you know tragedy and yeah and, and, and what they're experiencing because the medium has the ability to show that to us it has the ability to make that seem fresh and new and also open our eyes to something we don't normally pay attention to um i feel like that's not a bad way for us to uh segue into contract with god and uh there's <laughs> my copy from 1985 <laughs> yeah you have me beat on that one I, I i completely accept that uh this was actually something that i've i've been i don't know i have certain books that i get and i've still got wrapped in plastic because to me they're they're that moment because when i open them it's a gift to myself like mm -hmm. i've created that time where i'm going to sit down and enjoy that contract with god was one of those i waited for a long time to pick up Okay. And getting the chance to read it before we talked, I'd seen so many references from that uh, history of comic books I mentioned in the library yeah, yeah. And, uh, and other examples throughout. But reading it all the way through was a really powerful experience. And, and I would love to get some context because you read it before I did. And also, uh, you got your copy in 1985. You had, you had also, as you mentioned, heard about it. You, yeah. you know. Um, looked into other works by Will Eisner before you got it. And then you eventually got it. What, what was that like the first time? And then, you know, reading it through recently again, what, what was it like to experience it those two ways? When I first got it, I, I got a contract with God and a couple other of his, uh, I know I got a signal from space probably at the same time. And I mean, I'd heard this is the the first graphic novel. This is the first, uh, you know, time someone has written uh, a longer form book as like a single story. And the fact that it wasn't about superheroes, I felt was significant. And uh, it, I was still in at that point in my life where 
so what do you mean their comics not about superheroes because you know you're you're a kid and you're reading comics and it's superheroes 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 at least from most of my experience when i was younger and i think i was just shocked at the time at how adult it was i think it uh it went over my head in some ways i think because i could certainly look at it and appreciate um what he's doing uh visually and his, his his technical skill in both his storytelling as well as the actual images themselves but i think uh in rereading it recently for this I got a much better understanding of what he's doing as far as the themes and that aspect of the human condition that he's he's addressing in each of the individual stories because it's it's a it's not a single story it, it sounds like it's a single story but it's it's four stories uh, and I think it it has taken you know my own maturity uh, as an adult to be able to go back and understand a lot of the things that are in the book that I didn't get probably at the time. I mean, I, I knew I had to have it at the time and I knew that I had to read it and it was an important work. And like I said, I got some of it, but I don't think it's until you're older that you've had some more life experiences, maybe some that are similar, uh, that you can you can relate to that makes it more important but also is when you're young and you're and you're growing up and you're a teenager you know some of the stuff you know like in the story the super that he's got all the naked ladies on the wall and as a kid you're just like you're you're more titillated than anything else because you're a 15 year old boy and you're all these naked lady pictures on the wall and you're like you know, which is why, you know, you weren't allowed to have them. That's why Shelton was like, yeah, you can't have this. <laughs> Mrs. Right. Lloyd, I don't think your son should have this. Because, <laughs> you know, and there's no interview with Jack Kirby in this book. But, you know, it's so as a kid, I think until you're older and more mature, you're going to miss some of the stuff that's that's in there and, and what he's doing, you know, what he's doing with with some of the twists that are in the stories and you know I, I think of the very last page of the very last story with the oldest son standing on the balcony just sort of staring off as, and and until you're older you don't get what's happened to him really and what's changed because you're 15 years old you're still a kid it's for Whatever you may think of yourself as a fifteen-year-old, you're you're still a kid. <laughs> Whatever your maturity might be, you're still uh, excited by what's new. And mm -hmm. for most fifteen-year-olds, there's a possibility that what what you pointed out, the TNA, is yeah. is what really draws the eye. That's what really is going to be your focus. And so much of what else is going on can be lost in that. I, I do think you know when you're talking about that 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 feeling of what it's like to try and understand what this means before you've had the life experience that he's reflecting on it, the, the message isn't as clear. If I was reading this at 15, I would be more excited by the idea of 
being 15 and an older woman like you know yeah. wanting to seduce me as is suggested yeah. in, in one of the stories or the uh the idea of like you know being old enough to just have all these you know this access to girly mags or, or stuff yeah. like that that you're not allowed it's forbidden so yeah there's like this like you know possibility of like oh wow so when you're older you can do what you want and all this stuff that you're not allowed to get to you can you can get to but he doesn't paint it in like a glorified way it's no, not like no. the guy you know with the stuff on the wall is the guy you want to be he seems really unhappy he seems a little broken down at least physically uh his features just feel like oh, yeah. down you know everything about it feels like uh it's not quite sorted, not quite tawdry, but very depressing in its own context. And, and, and that's a, a truth and honesty. I really. It's amazing. He makes you feel sad for him though. He makes you, yes. think, you, you empathize with him. You, he may, he, even though he's, he's set up as the person that nobody likes in the building, the super, cause he's a, he's kind of a jerk and stuff. And then you see that he's just all by himself, alone. The only thing he has to keep himself company are these, you know, pictures on the walls, you know. And it's funny because it reminds me of being a kid and going to, like, get the oil change somewhere with my dad. And, you know, and then around the corner. You see that when calendar. You, <laughs> you, you, you take one or two steps too far, and then there's this calendar, and you're like, why is that in the, in the garage? Why is that in this, you know? And it, it's a weird, you learn, it, it makes you question, why are these things here in public with these men working? It's like, is that, it's, it's just weird at the time. You're like, what? I mean, I would still never put pictures like that up in public to see, but <laughs> at the time as a kid, it's, it's shocking. And then, so in the story, it's, it's the same way. It's, but as an adult, you see it as, as you see it a little differently instead of as you would as a kid. And he makes you feel sad for the guy. And then by the end, it's just, it's one of those tragic endings. And it's, it's everything is about misunderstanding and not seeing what's really going on around you. Yeah. And nobody, nobody's taking the time to see this guy as a person. He's just uh, the jerk super, uh, you know, can't stand that yeah. guy. Yeah, <laughs> and as uh, as as uh, Eisner describes in the uh, the intro for the version I have, the super was always a mysterious figure. He was just this guy who was always wandering the halls and fixing the pipes, and there was something like uh, scary about him because he was always grumpy and probably you know worn down by nagging and complaints and problems and things like that. Um, and also, what I what I find interesting is that he's the second story in this book. The first one refers to more about the title, the contract with God. Yeah. And, um, and someone who made a contract with God, who, you know, for whatever reasons, at some point at a young age, chose to do the right thing and has continued to do the right thing. And then tragedy strikes and he questions everything. He changes his whole direction in life. And this story and the stories that follow, uh, interestingly enough, all take place in one location, 55 Dropsy, <laughs> which is uh, a really interesting way for us to start thing off in with that story of uh, Hirsch and then to shift us all the way through into the other ones. What did you think of uh, Contract with uh, with God this time around or, or even the first time around? I, uh, 
I have a hard time remembering my initial reaction. That's fine. Other than, <laughs> you know, I, like I said, I could appreciate a lot of it. And it was so long ago. And like I said, I wasn't old enough to, to get what I think are the most important things. So I, I took some specific notes about the contract for God. And I'm just going to start with that because uh, I think it'll kind of point out what, uh, what we're talking about as far as the, the viewing it as an adult as opposed to as, as a kid. Um, initially, some of the, the, the illustrative stuff, the, the, the technical stuff, uh, uh, the rain, the way he does the rain in this story is it looks like syrup. It's so thick. Right. But it adds a weight to uh, to the story and what he's trying to communicate with the 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 sadness and the heaviness in uh, in Freeman Hirsch's life, uh, having just lost his daughter, uh, and the way he uses uh, blacks in in uh, suggesting shapes and forms without traditional outlines of figures in in some of the scenes, especially page uh, I think it's the right after the time, I don't know how yours is set up, but it's this page right here when you get to it and mm -hmm. there's that one there. That's, I mean, he's not really outlined the figure so much as suggested where it is by where the shadows and, and the blacks are in the back and, and the, the wrinkles on his coat and the bottom of his shoe. It's, it's just really, really stunning to, to, to look at it. And when he's going up the steps uh, two pages later with, like I said, the rain looks like syrup. It's so heavy. You can just feel the weight of the rain dragging him down, symbolizing his own uh, pain, having just buried his daughter. Um, well, in that intro that you're talking about, you know, it, it, it's the first one that you showed us. And then these are the two pages that move into, as you described. And he yeah, keeps that yeah. idea. It's almost like a, have you seen the old movie Les Samurai? Uh, no. Old black and white. And it's about an assassin, uh, 60s, and I believe the actor was actually like a model or model actor, but it's set in, uh, in France. And the opening scene, I didn't, I didn't know about this movie until I was watching an old Siskel and Ebert when I was pretty young, because my mom always did. And they were talking about movies that had been re-released because of production quality, you know, improvements, huh. things like that. And the opening scene is a room, and it's set in shadow, and... Sorry, got something stuck on my tongue there. <laughs> and you can see in the room, like they show the first like two minutes of the movie and you're watching this room. And then suddenly you realize that it's in black and white, a wisp of smoke. And you're like, where's that wisp of smoke? And in the shadows is a man lying on the bed, smoking a cigarette. And he's not doing anything more than lying there smoking it. And you don't even know he's there until the black and white contrast shows you the white smoke coming up. And then you're like, oh, there he is. And I feel like that was a wonderful nod to this moment when we start out with this syrup rain that's pouring down. And then you can just pick out this guy. And then over the next two pages, you're just following this guy as he's moving through. It's, it's almost like, you know, watching an ant trying to go through a horrible deluge. <laughs> and you're like, how's this guy going to make it? This is like yeah. torrential rivers. And somehow makes its way up and yeah it's this guy like climbing into this place but as you said it, it provides that emotional context because something really heartbreaking has occurred for him and then you were gonna keep going yeah go. um no that's fine that's fine so for for me experiencing this story uh as an adult here's what i get out of it and it's it's just not the kind of subject matter 
you expect to find in comics. But you know, to me, this is about a man's relationship with God and how uh, man perceives one's relationship with God. Uh, it also shows the cyclical elements of Fermi's experience. It plays out over and over again. People will always have this struggle. Uh, it, it shows the transition of someone who is spiritual to materialistic. Uh, it's almost a reversal of the story of Job in the Bible, where Job is, con is uh, you know, constantly tested and tested, and he never gives up his faith. But here, Freeman Hirsch is angry at God, and instead of trying to move forward because of his faith, he, he loses his faith, and he turns to the materialistic world, the materialistic things. And But you can see he's constantly trying to find his way back to god in the story he he doesn't totally give up he but he's he's heard enough that he's he's gone away and he's trying to come back uh but he he doesn't seem to understand that you can't do it on his terms he's got to do it on on god's terms because god's not gonna change but Frima Hirsch has to change. He has to have that change. Uh, and, and I think what is so significant about that is that depending on one's own spirituality, we all have moments in our lives where if we are believers, we feel like, just like Joe, why, why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, uh, why has this happened? And what does it mean? And um, I thought, God was good and all these things. And I think that's something that I saw this time that I didn't get as a 15 year old kid. Because even as a 15 year old kid, whatever your spirituality is like, it's really fresh still compared to being 50 years old and all the different aspects of your life that are going to impact how you view God and spirituality and the way the world works so i don't know if eisner himself was trying to say something about his own uh view of god and any sort of spirituality but it, that's how i saw this this time which was uh certainly something i i totally would have missed at 15. I, I think, uh, you know, you're raising some interesting points here, and it's important to keep in mind, you know, when we're talking about a contract with God, one of the first things is that the story begins with a death. You know, uh, Frimma has, uh, Frimma Hirsch has lost someone important to him. And along his life, he's always been told that his good works would lead to a reward. Mm -hmm. And he believed that uh, bringing up a child that wasn't his, an orphan, and and making sure that she uh, had everything he could offer is taken away from him when she is uh, lost to a tragic disease. And in his forward to this one, he, he mentions the fact that this is a story about Will Eisner's personal life, the, the death of his daughter, the, uh, the tragedy involved with that, and how he wanted to tell that story and he couldn't for a long time. Um, and the only way he could was through this character but he had to distance it enough from himself by making the characters lost through an adopted daughter. He couldn't mm. make it uh, um, 
uh, a blood relation, it was too close to the story that he had experienced. And then also in it is this concept of a boy who, which, you know, as we all start out at some point at our youngest selves, Frimmer Hirsch was this kid who just did the right thing, who always did good by others and was always told, and I felt this was important, that he would be rewarded for his good works. And at some point as a child, he makes a decision to pick up a stone after having a conversation with a, a leader of his, of his faith and saying, all right, if this is the deal, then I'm going to write down this contract with God in stone. Like, like he was setting in stone, <laughs> like, like a 10 commandment or something. Yeah, like the yeah. reference point feels so uh, beautiful and archaic and yet, and also like, so timeless, like what outlast stone, you know, like very few things outlast rock. Uh, even when we think of the petrified wood, like in some way it's been, you know, ossified there become this bone yep. stone like yep. structure. And in, in the doing so he makes this agreement, but with the loss is the feeling of what did it all get me? What, what did all these good works get me? You know, now here I am at this point where the best thing I could have had is taken away from me. And now all I can see is, is loss and heartache. And I'm caught by the ideas you suggest that he, he then makes a decision to forswear all that he's been doing, make the decisions that will benefit him the best, play a little fast and loose with money that isn't his and yet still come out on top, but always searching for that way to uh, get back what he once had in, in the way he remembers it. You know, that, that idea of, uh, how we picture things when we're young and how we expect them to be. And when the reality comes into play and you brought up faith, which I think is a good point because that's the reference point that Eisner is using. And, and he, he makes a, a point of that, but I feel like also he's talking about something that uh, goes beyond faith in that we come into being in the place where we are. And we come to understand the way things have existed before us and how they'll probably exist after us. But at some point, we make a deal with what is going on and what we want. And as we move forward, at some point, we realize that we no longer want to play the game by the world's terms, by the terms of the place we were born into. We want to, we want to establish things on our terms. Now, what leads us to that is, is individual it's unique and specific to each of us, but it's that transition when we no longer are willing to accept what we have accepted from the world and the way things work. And we decide, no, I want something different. I want something else, or I no longer agree with the way things operate. And that can be in regards to issues of faith or questions of faith. It can be in regards to, uh, where we see our future or our possibilities, where, where we see ourselves eventually going, um, or, or what we've agreed is the limits of our possibility. You know, you, you might think to yourself like, well, I was born here and I'm surrounded by this and I'll probably end up doing something like one of the people around me. And so you yeah. discover that there could be something else you could actually do. And now it's like, well, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to accept these terms that I've been told <laughs> are the way the world works, you know? Um, for me, I take into consideration my father, who was a, a, a cotton picker of all oh, things. Wow. Yeah, he, uh, he lived in this uh, little place right outside of Fresno, California. And uh, it was this tiny little town. And from the age of like five until he was 18, he picked cotton for like a quarter an hour. Yeah, like 
you, you can't wow. compete with my pops when it comes to like you can't complain <laughs> when you were a kid about hard work or things not being fair because he was just like my dad had this great saying life is hard and then you die <laughs> like, yeah. that was it you know it was a very cut and dry way but then suddenly Vietnam is approaching and his brother who had returned from the Korean conflict as a mortar expert and said there's no jobs for guys who have expertise in mortars when they come back to the States. You need to get a trade because you're going to get drafted. And suddenly this kid from a farm who decides that he's going to enlist before he gets drafted, learns a radio trade and leaves his expectations to suddenly like have a whole different approach to his life would never have been possible if events hadn't transpired. Because when he goes back, to see other people when he would tell me stories about visiting his home all the guys he went to school with are still in the same place all the people he knows saw what was around them knew what the expectation was accepted how it was going to work and and went with it and up until that time he had done the same thing until something changed that for him you know he he had to make a decision for another reason and and i'm struck by that because his term for his reasons for doing what he did were, were based on one set of circumstances. In, in this instance, you know, the decision was made by Hirsch to pursue life based on the terms that had been described to him. And yet it was through a tragedy that he suddenly yeah. decides, okay, no longer am I going to play, you know, by the rules of which I'd previously agreed to. Yeah. Uh, and then in doing so, at some point he decides he wants to formalize the change. Yeah. He wants to, you know, say, okay, uh, Everyone around me knows that I'm missing something. How can I get it back? What if I make a new contract? What yeah. if I write a contract that works for what I want? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's my think, way of formalizing to the world or to the, the faith and to the, you know, the, the, the presence that is behind that faith. Like, okay, yeah. this is how I'd like to do things from now on. Yeah. Talk to me. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the, the, the things is that, that you, you can't, that he, you can't do that. You can't, he can't change God in, in a story. He can't change God, but that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to, to pin pigeonhole God into this contract that because he's, 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 uh, you know, solicited the input of the, 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 the rabbis at the, at the synagogue that uh, this is, you know, the best way to do this and such, but he, he can't that's what he's that's what he's not learning uh, i guess through this and the other thing when you told me it was definitely about eisner's own daughter it really got me thinking that uh, it is part of the story part of what he's working through is understanding that the gift he got was having the daughter because it's really a situation for for hirsch that he was a single man and this baby just shows up. That really is a gift from God out of nowhere. And that having that child, raising that child, loving that child, even though she dies, uh, is still the gift. And it's better to have learning that it's better to have had that experience and had that love in your life than to never have had that child at all as painful as it is to lose it. I wonder now if that's part of what he was really trying to, to work through. Cause that's something, that's something I'm seeing now as I, as we discuss it, that I wasn't really quite, wasn't really quite there the first on the reread recently, but it's making me think about it a little bit even more. And that's where we're going to go ahead and pause 
This really great conversation I was lucky enough to enjoy with Matt B. Lloyd. It was released on Monday, March 1st, the first day of Will Eisner week. And I'm going to sit down with Matt and the owner of his comic book shop for some insider stories about Will Eisner and maybe some other fun names, faces, and legends of the comic creating industry. And then through that, you'll have an opportunity to look forward to part two of this conversation, which will be made available on Friday at the end of Will Eisner Week, heading into the weekend. It'll give you an opportunity to hear more of what Matt and I have to say about Contract with God, the many ideas that Will Eisner is addressing in his graphic novel, and what things we're able to take away and what parts of it still leave us asking questions, doing our best to understand, and recognizing where even our best is probably going to fall short when you're talking about a visionary, a creator, and a legend. Thank you for joining me for this amazing episode, this wonderful conversation, this episode number 87. I look forward to bringing you the second half on Friday, and I hope you get the opportunity to join and see and hear my great conversation with Matt and his local comic shop owner. More on that for you to discover soon. Until Friday in part two, thanks for listening to Storytelling with Seth. I look forward to hearing any ideas, questions, stories you might have. You can send them to me on Twitter as One More Singleton, or find me on the greater World Wide Web. Just type in my name, Seth Singleton, in the word story. Wherever you find me, send me a message. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And if you have a story, I should be sharing here on Storytelling with Seth. Until next time, I look forward to sharing my next story with you.